Father God, we uh, don't want to strive after the wind. We don't want to live lives that feel meaningless or, or vain. Uh, we want to live lives that reflect your goodness, Lord, that reflect uh, your wisdom. In this tricky part of the Bible to get our heads around, Lord, help us to see the clues that are there of how we can live lives of purpose, lives of meaning, and ultimately lives that serve you, Lord, that we might know you more, that might love you more and serve you more day by day. So, Lord, give us uh, open ears, minds, and hearts. Make them soft to your word and will tonight. Amen. Good evening, everybody. Uh, if not a chance to, to meet before, my name is uh, Johnny. I'm a member of our, our congregation here. I, I wonder as we start this evening, what springs to mind when you think of, of that idea of wisdom, what it means to live wisely, uh, or who you think maybe kind of embodies uh, those kind of characteristics of wisdom. A quick search of this on, on Google brings up some top candidates, you know, all of the usual suspects, Socrates, you know, Confucius, Buddha, and Bandit from Bluey. That, that joke is hitting hard for about three dads in the room. The rest of you will have to check it out for me. I don't think any of us here aspires, aspires to be, you know, anything other than wise. We, as I prayed before, we don't want to feel like we're living wasted lives. But it feels sometimes, doesn't it, too, that uh, the, the buffet of life's options, of all the different ways that we could pursue that life of meaning. There's so many choices. How can we actually know which one is the best to take? You know, on the one hand, you have the, the hedonists, the guys who are saying to us, life is all about pleasure. You know, do whatever you can to get as much of it as you can. Or on the other hand, you've got the grafters who are telling us that life is about what you can produce that we find our value in work uh, and the things we can make and the things we can achieve. Or there's maybe the guy somewhere in the middle of that who are saying work's all right, but work's only as good as the stuff it gets you, the accumulators. Get as much stuff as you can. If you can sit at home and enjoy it, then you'll feel satisfied, then, then you'll feel good. Or maybe it's the so-called wise guys. I, I don't mean that in some kind of like mafioso way. But, you know, maybe the guys who seem to have sussed out the answers to all of life's big questions. In tonight's passage, it, it feels like the preacher puts all of those different theories to the test for us. It's almost like our preacher is the scientist. Chapter 117, he applies his heart to this problem for us. It's like he's the scientist who says to us, I'm going to check everything out. I'll do the test for you. And I'm going to give you the lab report. I'm going to feed back to you on what works and what doesn't. One of the things that I really enjoy about this passage and one of the things I really like about this book is the realistic way that it looks at the world. Where good guys actually don't always come first. Where things that we think we might deserve that we don't get or where bad things happen to good people and when we see that, it troubles us, doesn't it? Even as people who know God, even as people who've maybe walked with God for a long time, those things can irk and trouble us. It gets us scratching our chins and saying, why would God allow that? What, what is the deal with that? That is complicated. I, I love the, the way the book of Ecclesiastes tries to get to grips with some of that. And if you were here last week, 
Uh, David started to open this up for us, didn't, it? didn't he? As we started off, you can see it back in chapter 1, verse 2, how this verse, sorry, how this book starts off in trying to answer those complex questions. It's with a pretty complex answer, isn't it? Where it says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. If you open up an NIV Bible, you'd find the word meaningless there. But David actually helped us last week, didn't he, to see that it doesn't just mean meaningless as in pointless, but instead as kind of incompatible or confusing. Ah, it just doesn't seem to add up or doesn't seem to make sense. Things just don't often seem to work out the way that we, we feel that they should. My inner you know, RE teacher can't resist a bit of Old Testament Bible geekery for us. Uh, so the Hebrew word there is hevel uh, in Hebrew. That's literally the word for, for smoke or vapor. And that's, I think, quite a helpful metaphor for us to keep a hold of, isn't it? Because smoke has this unique quality that you can see it and smell it. It's definitely real, but when you try and reach out and grab it, you just can't. There's something that just doesn't add up about it. There's nothing there. It, it fails to live up to the expectation you had of it. And that sometimes to speak to our experience of life, doesn't it? It just doesn't quite work out how we think it's going to. So let's have a look this evening at the three tests that the preacher, our scientist, runs for us and his lab report, his feedback to us as to what he finds out as to how hopefully we can begin to understand what living lives of meaning looks like and wisdom. Let's have a look at the first test at the start of chapter two as he tests out how best he would be to use his time. Just look with me in verse one where he says, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Just skip down to verse 4 with me. It says, I made great works. And if you look at that list of achievements there, it's not just any great works, is it? This is very impressive. It puts most of our work achievements to shame, I'm sure. He builds houses and vineyards, gardens and parks and all kinds of fruit trees. He has possessions for days. He's like the modern day equivalent of like an Elon Musk or Mr. Beast kind of figure with possessions we can't even imagine. He doesn't restrict himself from any pleasure. Whatever he wants, he tries. It feels like in our, you know, he's living the dream, isn't he? Most of us would, would happily swap places. Many of us in the world would look at him and think this guy has got it all. But does it give him that satisfaction that he's dreaming of? Well, we see the conclusion down in, in verse 11 of, of chapter 2. If you look with me, it says, I considered all my hands had done and the toil I had expended. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. It's proven to be like smoke. He thought he could grab onto it. But when he reached out and grabbed it, it just didn't satisfy as he expected we live in a culture don't we where we're just so saturated by marketing that tells us that the route to happiness is through getting that bit more stuff or doing that one more nice thing and that will be the thing that finally does it that is what will fill us up and make us feel warm and cozy inside and satisfied and happy we will have that movie ending 
that moment of happiness, and it'll stay that way. But yet also, I, I think in our heart of hearts, each of us knows that that's quite futile, isn't it? That it just doesn't work out like that. I don't think I'm the only one who's got excited about a new possession, a new phone maybe, and then sat there with a day or so thinking, wait, was that, was that really it? I got so excited about that. Or, or last week I thought it was really helpful when, when David spoke about Johnny Wilkinson at the, the peak of his sporting powers, at the, the peak of the sporting mountain, no less, a position many of us would dream of filling his boots in that moment. But yet he just looks around at it all and just it's all a bit, just a bit meh. Or we spent a year looking forward to a holiday and we find it slips too fast. And it, we want to grab a hold of it, but it is, it's just like smoke. It doesn't satisfy us in that lasting way that we want, us, want it to. It hasn't worked, has it? So let's move on down into verse 12 as our preacher turns from the everyday stuff of life to the very pursuit of wisdom and education itself. You might have heard this and thinking, yeah, Johnny, come on, bring this one on. We know you think stuff is overrated, but Johnny, you know, wisdom. You're not, not gonna, you're an educator. You're not going to come for wisdom, are you? You're a teacher after all. Let's turn to the preacher and find out his point of view in verse 12. It says, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And then on into verse 13 as well. I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. But yet, at the end of verse 15, I said in my heart that this is also vanity. At first, this, seems, this test seems to be getting off to a, a better start, doesn't it? We see that, that just like light is better than darkness, that wisdom is better than folly. And yet even this good thing, there is something unsatisfactory about it. You know, although it's right, understanding something does feel better than not. You know, be it the things that we learn at school, for example. So encounter guys, I'm not writing off tomorrow's lessons for you. You know, you can't throw your pen down at disgust in your physics lesson and charge out the room shouting, it's all vanity. I'm not giving you consent for that. Maybe just dropping in a bit of Hebrew as you go to show that you really mean it. But ultimately, even that pursuit of a good thing, of wisdom, of education, will that provide a lasting satisfaction and a meaning to life? As the preacher reflects on it more, he realizes that surely the answer must be no. In verse 15, it's clear it's the reality of the death that comes to all that really makes this clear to him. He writes, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I think we all recognize this to be true. Even the most intelligent of us have never completed our education. We've never ticked it off. I bet likewise, each of us have had experience where that, that bit of learning that we thought was going to seal the deal uh, then proves not to be the thing that we thought it was. Our years 12s and 13s will remember that experience of starting A-level courses and realizing that, oh, I thought my GCSEs were the big one. Or, you know, there's many of us in the room young enough to think that SATs were a big deal. But now you look back and think, what, what even was that? 
As we thought about last week, our, our preacher reflects on the passage of time. And it puts everything into a different light and a different scale for him, doesn't it? You know, without being too, too depressing or morbid about it, he realizes actually, what about this will be remembered? It's the same for us, isn't it? In 200 years of time, even the very wisest of us, what are the chances that, that we'll be remembered? So seen so far that our, our stuff can't satisfy and wisdom won't do the trick either. Maybe, maybe work can save the day. But yet if we look at verse 18, we can't say that, that labor and toil comes out any better, can we? It says, I hated all my toil in which I worked under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Our preacher reviews all of his achievements, but recognizes that ultimately, when his life comes to an end, he will be able to take none of them with him. He will have to pass it on to somebody else. He will leave it to another who might profit from it or might squander it completely. In verse 22, he says, What has a man? from all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. This also is vanity. To say this chunk of the Bible hits pretty hard home for me uh, would be a massive understatement. Folks who know me well will know how passionate I am about my work. I'm someone who puts the hours in, sometimes even in death ways. When I first read this, I was challenged by it. You know, what is there for me in this passage? But the more I've reflected on it helpfully at the start of a new year, the second week of the Christmas holiday, a really helpful truth has become clearer and clearer in my mind that when we place infinite demands on finite things, be it stuff, education, our jobs, when we put infinite demands on finite things, we will always find that they will disappoint. It might be true of the pursuit of pleasure, and we can see that and find it easy, but it's also true of our work. And that can be even so more the case when the pursuit of these finite things gets in the way of the stuff of real importance, of the, the stuff of the infinite eternal value I read recently of a study by a guy named uh, Michael Zigarelli excellent name who did a five year study on thousands of Christians in the United States as to what they found to be the number one distraction from white life with God the family fortune's top answer for this one is busyness and I'm so guilty of this it's unbelievable Zigaretti concludes that Christians blend into a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, just like we looked at uh, last Sunday morning with Ben, which leads to God being pushed to the margins, so their relationship with God deteriorates, which in turn leads to increased vulnerability to the world's assumptions as to how best to live. It loops back around in a vicious cycle. It's almost like Zigarelli has been watching me from a distance and taking notes when I read this. When we make toil and work and busyness our God, rather than a gift from God, we will only find that it leaves us feeling empty. 
and it offers a lack of meaning. I think actually post-COVID, the world as a whole is, is catching on to this idea more and more. We, we see it played out in, in the secular world in, in lots of different ways. One way is the phenomenon you might have heard of recently of quiet quitting. Let me just read you this brief description of that from a recent Guardian article. It says, rather than working late on a Friday evening or organising the annual team-building trip to Slough or volunteering to supervise the boss's teenager on work experience, the quiet quitters are avoiding the other and beyond, the hustle culture mentality, or what psychologists call occupational citizenship behaviours. Instead, they are doing just enough in the office to keep up, then leaving work on time and muting their emails, then posting about it on social media. So where does this leave all of us Christians? You know, should we join this, this great exodus? Or is it all just pointless? Maybe we should make like the, the desert fathers of the third century who, who decided actually the life of simplicity out on your own is, is the best. Maybe we just withdraw from the world around us. Well, maybe surprisingly to us, Ecclesiastes actually, I think, ends with the most incredible note of encouragement. Uh, so let's look at it for, together as we, we head towards the final straight in verse 24. It starts, there is nothing better. I, I think when I first read this, I was about, oh, there's nothing better. But I actually think this is a bit like, there is nothing better. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Have you ever watched a film or read a book where the closing moments casts everything that you saw in a whole brand new light? Uh, I had an example here, but I decided even having that example was a spoiler. But if you want that example, you can come and ask me about it later on. Uh, for me, this passage is a great example of that. You know, it reveals the purpose of our preacher's experiment. It isn't to depress us or leave us heads down, trudging to the door, quietly quitting or noisily quitting or anywhere in between. But instead, it offers, I think, a, a remarkable key to finding joy in the everyday by just recognizing it for what it is, the everyday. By recognizing that finite things are just that, understanding their, their temporary nature, understanding their limitations, recognizing the fact that they cannot satisfy that part of us as humans that craves for the transcendent, the immortal, the eternal, the infinite, then actually when we do that, we can enjoy them just as God intended them for us, as good gifts for us. It's true, isn't it, when we look at much of what passes for wise living in our world, on closer inspection, is actually people filling their need for God with other stuff. It might be drink, it might be relationships, status, having more stuff, a qualification that's going to open the door to the job, the house, the car. But often when I've got friends who've pursued this, and actually what have I seen with them? It's only left them disappointed. 
It's only still left that hole and searching for something else to fill it. When we try to make those finite things of infinite value, we can only ever be disappointed. But instead, this part of God's word offers us that key to enjoy them as what they are, as gifts from his hand for our good. So when we bite into that perfect bit of buttery toast, we can enjoy it as a gift from God. For what it is, or the cold iron brew, it's right that we enjoy these things. They are gifts from God for us to enjoy. They're a taste of the goodness of God's creation. They're a sneak, tiny preview of how much more amazing our eternal future is going to be. All the toast will be perfect. But we need to enjoy them for what they are. Or when we're working on something significant and we feel a moment of satisfaction and achievement, we shouldn't then just like smack our computer closed and say, oh, it's all vain. Actually, no, it's right that we enjoy that, that work as a gift from God. But we can't expect it to satisfy us forever. Truly, I, I love this part of the Bible because it speaks to and acknowledges the reality of our existence. We are physical. We are made of stuff. This stuff feels real and genuine and significant. God desires that we find enjoyment and joy in it. What better example can we see of that? That God genuinely thinks that this stuff is important. That in the Christmas mystery, he himself becomes physical in the person of Jesus. He works with his hands as a carpenter. It makes it clear to us, doesn't it, that work in its right place is a good gift. Therefore, that the value of our work can't be found in a status it gives us or position it affords us, but instead in its status as a gift from God. Let's start heading uh, towards the end. As we've seen, the preacher is troubled by the, the vanity of it all, the incompatibility, the smokiness of it all. And it might be hard in any way to imagine ourselves as, as wiser than the preacher. But actually, we hold one great advantage, one incredible advantage on him. In our privileged position, this side of Jesus, it allows us to see that even when it feels purposeless or meaningless or incompatible, that in fact the universe has a start a focal point and a destination in Christ. When we understand that, that massive scale, and our, our, our small, tiny place in it, it gives us reason to keep on going when we face those frustrations. It gives us a source, an anchor for trust in God's salvation plan and history and a reason to look forward in hopeful anticipation of when Christ will bring this phase of history to an end and bring us into an eternal future with him. By orientating ourselves, finding our location in this story, it gives us strong foundations for a life of true wisdom and purpose in the here and now. So let me finish with a few quick, clear applications for us. And they might be a bit surprising. So firstly, let, let's eat and drink and enjoy it. So encounter, guys, when, when you head for your encounter tea, it's genuinely one of my culinary highlights of the week. 
Thank you, parents, who help us out with it. And we're passing around the biscuit plate at the back, whatever it is. Let's recognize these things for the gifts they truly are. It can be so easy for us to take these things for granted. Yet when we consider ourselves in terms of all the world and all of history, we are so fortunate and privileged. So let's find that joy in the small things. And let's work with dedication, but also with perspective. Paul sums it up well in Colossians when he says, work heartily, ask for the Lord. Our preacher wants us to find joy in our work rather than toil. But also we'd be blind, and, and this is me just telling this to myself with you all listening really. Recognize the warning not to treat work as a functional God. A challenge I've considered is what I need to do less of in order to take more time for God, having studied this passage. At the turn of this year, it's been a, a great place for me to start my January. And last, lastly, let's recognize that as we saw last week, that true wisdom and contentment cannot be found from things under the sun, but instead lifting our eyes above and beyond in thanks and gratitude for the good gifts we receive, but even more so for our amazing place in that salvation plan. We saw this last week. We'll pick this up next week as, as we see with, with Ken how God has set that eternity on the hearts of men. Hopefully that whets our appetite for even more study of Ecclesiastes then. As we close, there's, there's lots to consider in this passage. Let me just give you a, a moment of quiet as we pray together to close. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Amen.